Um, good afternoon. Today's sermon is entitled, Finish the Race. And the text is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12 through 17. I wonder if you guys notice the voices, the voices of you singing. A few weeks ago, I was in Michigan with my wife. We were on a small vacation, and one of the fears that I had was listening live stream um, to the service and having to sing next to her. Because, I mean, I don't think either one of us can really sing that well, so it was like a little daunting and scary for me to be able to, or have to sing next to her. And um, as I reflected on that day, I thought, man, it's so good to be surrounded by the church so that my poor voice can be drowned out by the corporate voice. And maybe you'll hear it again after we finish the sermon, but pay attention to the voices, the voice, your voice, our voice, that one is praising God, but two, it's helping us remember that we're not alone. Finish the race. Um, let me pray for us, and then we will dig into this text. Father, thank you for the body of Christ and for weaving us into that body, for the many ways that you sustain us and keep us tethered to you through the means of one another. You use the body to care for the body, and God, we're thankful. And I pray that this sermon would be means to see that done more, that we would grow and excel even more to love one another as you have loved us. So glorify your name through this sermon. Teach us more about who you are, who we are, and make us more like Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Um, Nietzsche once wrote, in truth, there was only one Christian, and he died upon a cross. So he's referring to Jesus. Jesus is the only Christian. All these other people, don't, don't trust them. They don't know what they're doing. It's also been said, Christianity might be a good thing if anyone ever tried it. Even Christians say things like this sometimes. One Christian said, millions of Christians down the centuries have succeeded in making Christianity exactly the opposite of what it is in the New Testament. I came across these quotes from a book by Oz Guinness and he wrote a chapter on how Christians should think about hypocrisy, how Christians should think about their own hypocrisy, their own failure to measure up to what scripture tells them they should be. Scripture makes it clear that God is the true judge. He sees 
our external deeds, but he also sees the internal realities of our hearts. So he sees the motives and the attitudes and the thoughts that we have. So truly, it's him that we should fear in that sense. But it's important to sometimes pay attention to the fact that people are watching. Your neighbors are watching. Our families are watching. Friends are watching. And they're watching and wondering and waiting to see whether our lives will actually measure up to what we say we believe. So that's why when we arrive at texts like the one that we're going to look at today, it's important to pay close attention because this text is telling us how we ought to live. How we ought to live, especially within a community. So it's important to pay close attention. So let me read our text. Hebrews verse, chapter 12, verse 12 says, Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with many tears. So I see two sections in this passage. First section is found in verses 12 through 13, which employs this athletic imagery to communicate to the church, this is how you should finish a race. Chapter, verse 1 of chapter 12 says, run with endurance the race that is set before you. So this athletic image is means to communicate how you should run. The second section, verses 14 to 17, it moves away from this image and just plainly states what that looks like within a community of Christians. So that's how I want to break up this passage. Two points, strength for the weary. And the second point, in pursuit of peace and holiness. So first point, strength for the weary. The author of Hebrews spills a lot of ink walking through all the reasons why we should place our faith in God. And particularly, we should trust Jesus. We should see him as better than anything this world has to offer. That's what Hebrews 1 through 10 are really concerned about. Then chapter 11 gives this powerful picture of people, specific people who have exemplified the life that we ought to live. They lived by faith. And then Chapter 12 goes into Jesus. He's this premier example of one who walked by faith and not by sight. He walked by faith even through death. He died, but he was raised to life. He kept his faith. And 
the writer of Hebrews is saying, you do the same. You run that race. You run your race. Verses 12 through 13 are a picture of our condition, of the Hebrews' condition. They're, they are weary. If you go back in our sermon archive, October 2019, Pastor Aiden preached on Hebrews 12, 1 through 11. And I think he masterfully walked us through suffering and how this community, this audience, these readers were suffering through great trials. And yet the writer of Hebrews is saying, persevere. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. They're tired. They're tired. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Again, this is a word picture. It's an image of someone who's been through a lot. They've been suffering. They've been oppressed. He's acknowledging the pain, but he's saying, get up. Keep going. Don't give up. And the author employs a... Old Testament passage to encourage the readers. He's drawing from, this is this verse is straight from Isaiah 35. I'll read it. Isaiah 35, verse 3 says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. And that's what the author is doing. He sees a community that is weak. He sees a community that's afflicted. And he says, get up. Verse 4, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. That's why the author of Hebrews can say in verse 13, make straight paths for your feet, meaning keep going. God is coming. He will save you. He will deliver you. He will provide for you. Keep going. Remain faithful, be obedient, so that what is lame may not, be, may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So healing, salvation, is promised to those who persevere. So don't give up. This is not some like pull, up, pull yourself up by the bootstraps, positive self-talk. This is an author who knows God, pointing other people to God so that they might endure. He's saying, hey, have hope in God. He's worth it. Keep pursuing him. And this is further demonstrated by the fact that the author closes the letter of Hebrews with this. Verse, chapter 13, verse 20, he says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good so that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So you see, that hope that we have from God is that he is working in us everything that pleases him. He's also supplying everything that we need so we can persevere. 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. That's how he ends his letter. He's pointing them to God. It's not pull yourselves up, get strong. No. God is giving you strength. Use it. Keep going. Persevere. You know, I find myself meditating on this passage a lot these days. Like, man, my life is not what I want it to be. But I need to trust and believe that God has supplied me with all that I need to be what he wants me to be. You know, I had a, a thought this past week about one regret that I had on my wedding day. I've already shared one. Um, one regret that I had was I didn't say my vows as loud as my wife. I went first. She went second. I listened to the audio. It, looks, it sounds like I'm whispering and she's shouting. So I was just not happy about that. I wish I would have said it louder so that she wouldn't think I'm embarrassed or something. Like, I, I really love her. I'm grateful for her. My second regret that I realized is that, you know, I wish I could have said something like, vow, 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 so help me God. I can't even remember my vows right now. But so help me God. I wish I would have added that to the end. You know, maybe people would have laughed. But I realized that I missed out on an opportunity to remind both myself and those around me that my only hope to keep these vows was God. That's my only hope. You can promise people a lot of different things, but what hope do you have that that will happen? God is my only hope in keeping my marriage vows. The same is true when it comes to persevering in the faith. God is our only hope. So he, this author, points people to God to give them strength, strength to the weary. He cares about them. He cares about them so much that he's pointing them to God. Behold, your God will come. He will come and save you. So strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Keep going down the straight path. Your healing, your salvation is near. Point two, in pursuit of peace and holiness. So, like I said, verse 12, 13, they're, they're a word picture. But what does lifting up, drooping hands, strengthening weak knees, making straight paths look like? What, is that, what does that look like? Verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So pursue peace. Strive after it. It doesn't come easy. You have to pursue it. You have to go at it. Same with holiness. Holiness doesn't just fall in our laps. We have to go get it. We have to pursue it. Being right before God and living in a way that pleases him is something that we must exert energy to get. So that's what he's calling them to do. Pursue these things. Strive after these things. And the warning is that without holiness, a relationship with God is not possible. So make sure you pursue it. 
And I think this passage gives three specific ways for how we can do that. I'm going to call them three concerns, okay? Three concerns. And you can see them for yourself. If you look at verse 15 and 16, just look at the word, look for the word no. You can see it for yourself. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That's the first concern. Second concern, see to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. It's the second concern. Third concern, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. So those are the three concerns that we want to look at, and then we're done. Concern number one, reaching the goal. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Grace of God, what does that mean? Adoption as his children. Justified, we are declared righteous before God. We are sanctified. We are being made like Christ. And there's a promise of glorification. We will one day be like him, completely sinless. And there's this blessed, eternal condition of comfort and rest, peace, love. That's what the grace of God is. The grace of God secures that for us. It's a free gift purchased by Jesus, by his blood. So don't miss out on that. That's what he's saying. See to it that no one fails to obtain that grace of God. How do you miss out on it? By not persevering? By getting distracted? Having your heart captured by idols, false teaching. So be on guard and have your mind and sight fixed on the grace of God so that you don't miss it. There are warnings throughout this letter. Hey, don't miss out on this grace. And embedded in this command, exhortation, is a, a thought that believers should, should not just have mere knowledge of the grace of God, not just mere, oh, that makes sense, make sure that I keep it in my mind, but there should be a, a, a pursuit, a joy in the grace of God. Like, a, I want that. It's, it's the prize that I'm after. That's what, that's what I'm focused on. And what I began to realize as I was studying this passage is there's a correlation. So how much I love the grace of God, how much I am in pursuit of the grace of God will dictate or correlate to how much I care about whether you or others get that grace of God as well. Do you see? I, loving the grace of God, want you to enjoy the grace of God. That's why I can see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. But it only happens if I actually want it myself. So there's embedded in this command, exhortation, hey, enjoy the grace of God. Pursue the grace of God. And then see to it that those around you are doing the same. And the opposite is true. If I don't care, I don't care that you don't care. If I don't care about the grace of God, and you don't care about the grace of God, 
It's cool. Do you see? The more I love and pursue the grace of God, the more I'm willing to see that others pursue and love that grace of God as well. But remember, a healthy church is not carried on one person's shoulders. It's not carried on your shoulders. It's not carried on the pastor's shoulders. A healthy church, the burden is spread across all of us. We all are, ought to see to it that no one fails to reach the grace of God. That should be a, a concern that we all share together. Like when I'm in small group, whether I'm leading or not, I have to remember, it's not just the small group leader who should pray for the small group members. The small group members should pray for the small group members because we care about one another. And this passage is a beautiful reminder that member care is a responsibility that we can all share together. So as you're caring for me, I'm caring for you. And as I'm caring for you, you're caring for me. That's what this passage is about. See to it that no one fails to reach that grace that we all say that we love. Concern number two, roots of bitterness. Second part of verse 15 says, See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. When I first read this passage, I thought it was talking about bitterness, like anger, um, conflict. Oh, strive for peace. See to it that there's no bitterness around you. And bitterness and anger are very damaging to any relationship, inside the church or outside the church. But... I don't think that's what this passage is talking about. First thing to note is root of bitterness. That's in quotation, right? You can see that yourself. Root of bitterness is in quotation, so there's some significance to that phrase. And a good study Bible will point you to Deuteronomy 29:18, that begins with this exhortation. Hey, beware and guard yourself against individuals or groups of people who will go after other gods. That's what Deuteronomy 29, 18 says. Beware of people who are following other gods, turning away from God and worshiping idols. And then the verse ends with this. Notice the parallel. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. See that? root of bitterness, a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. As one commentator says, this is an image of poison and bitterness flowing through the roots and affecting the whole tree. So see to it that that doesn't happen. See to it that bitterness is not seeping in through the roots and affecting the tree. One way to think about this is that when a heart is captured by an idol or false teaching, that person becomes like their idol, like that false teaching, meaning they become cancerous, they become problematic, they become 
dangerous. So we ought to be on guard, aware of what's happening, who, who's around us, what truth is around us, and what lies are around us. That's why the author wants the readers to say, hey, I'm on guard against roots of bitterness. Where are they? I, I want to be aware of them because left unattended, left unengaged, they will cause trouble. Idols within a church will defile the church. So see to it that there are none. I think um, I can illustrate these first two concerns this way. And this is a sad story, but I'll share it. Um, one basic principle of investing is buy low, sell high. I just taught you like all of finance in 10 seconds. Buy low, sell high, okay? I think my biggest regret of 2020 happened in on April 7th, 2020. 2020, sorry. April 7th was the last day that I owned 10 shares of Tesla stock. So I owned 10 shares of Tesla. Um, when I first purchased it, I had a clear goal, long-term gains. That was my goal. Um, that's what every goal of investing is. Long-term gains, usually. Long-term gains. And, you know, this was the middle of a pa pandemic. Stock market is going crazy. Um, and then I listened to an analyst. And he said, hey, it's just going to get worse. They don't even understand the virus and all these. It's going to get worse. So you should um, try to take advantage of a lower point. So I thought, okay, um, this root of bitterness called greed crept up in my mind, in my heart. And I thought, okay, sell it. Sell it and then watch it drop and then buy some more and then be rich. That's what, that's what I was thinking. And that's what I did. I sold it. Because um, I thought I can buy, buy low. I'll buy even lower. Then I'll sell high. Uh, this Friday, Tesla, I think, closed at its highest. Uh, it's, the number is not relevant. You can look it up. But I forfeited about $14,000. Like, all I had to do was just continue the race, just finish the race, just don't do anything in this situation. I just had to keep, keep going. Don't hit sell. $14,000. I would have been $14,000 richer if I hadn't listened to different analysts saying, hey, another dip is coming. Come on, you can, you can hold out. This passage is trying to warn you against missing out on the goal and against letting roots of bitterness, letting false teaching, letting idols 
letting anything that would come and pull you away from God keep you from finishing the race. Third concern, an unholy life. The readers of this letter are to have their eyes set on the grace of God. They are to be on the lookout for roots of bitterness. And finally, they are to be aware of their own hearts. And notice, as you move from the first concern to the last concern, even in the passage, there's just more information given. The verses become a little bit longer. And I think that's because our hearts are really the most dangerous place of war. So we need to be on guard. We need to be aware of what's going on in our hearts. And concern two is more external, you know? Idols, false teaching, people who have given themselves over to cheap substitutes who should not have their affection. Those gods, false idols, should not have their affection, their devotion, but yet they've given themselves over. So they, those are the external things, but this final concern is more about the internal reality of our hearts. Verse 16, see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Um, in Esau's day, Genesis chapter 25, um, he was coming home from work. He was a hunter-gatherer. Coming home, he was hungry and really hungry, apparently. And he came home, and his brother just happened to be cooking a meal, a bowl of beans, lentils, it says. So he's coming home, really hungry. His brother is cooking a meal. He says, brother, can I get some of that? His brother says, only if you give me your birthright. Um, I don't know. We don't really think about birthrights these days, but a birthright is... It's just like a double portion of the inheritance in relation to everything else that was shared amongst your siblings. So he would get double whatever the siblings had to share. So it was just him and his brother. Give me your inheritance. Give me your birthright. And Esau said, sure. What's, what's it to me? If I die of hungry, hunger, it doesn't even matter. Give me it. Give me this bowl of lentils for my birthright. When I go online, um, some days I, I check, but many days I'm very upset to check Tesla, their stock price, because it's so high. It's so high. It's high, like really high. And it wasn't that high when I had it. And I keep thinking to myself, maybe I missed it. Maybe I missed like one of the greatest stock purchases that I could have ever made in my life. I think I might have missed it. I was hungry for short-term gains and not willing to have the long-term gains. I traded it. These days I've been telling myself, it's okay. If you've missed that trade 
and missed all the gains and profits that you could have had and maybe you could even have more, it's okay. Just don't miss out on eternity. That's what I've been t trying to tell myself daily. Do not miss out on eternity. Eternity is better than Tesla shares. It's better. That's what I'm trying to tell myself. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell you. Don't be like Esau, sexually immoral, an idolater. Don't be unholy like Esau, who traded what was worth lots for something that was so small. Your inheritance is always worth more than a pot of beans. Don't trade. That's what sexual immorality is. That's what being unholy is. It's looking at God saying, you are a gift, but you are not as valuable as this. There's something else that supersedes you. There's something else that's more precious than you. Don't be like Esau. Don't, like, that's like me taking 10 shares of Tesla stock today and saying, oh, you have Monopoly money? Oh, can I get some of that? I'll give you these shares of stock. Like, nobody would do that. So don't do it. Another event that's referenced in Esau's life comes in verse 17. It says, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with many tears, with tears. Um, this event shows up two chapters later, Genesis 27, and I think there might be a relationship between verse 16 and 17, but I know for certain that what is being communicated in verse 17 is this. There is coming a day when there will be no opportunity to turn back, to, to reverse what has happened. Esau experienced that when he was talking to his father. In you can read it in Genesis chapter 27, 37, 27. You can read it there, but there's coming a day when Christians and non-Christians, it will be set. Judgment will happen. There will be no turning back. So throughout Hebrews, the author says, turn back now while there's an opportunity. Turn back now. Place your faith in Jesus now. Today, it actually says. Today. Don't wait until tomorrow because you don't know how this sin will spiral and lead you to go astray. You don't know. You don't know. So today, while there's an opportunity, while you hear his voice saying, repent, do it now. We pursue holiness as evidence that our hearts have been changed by God. So perfection is not being taught here. Perfection is not being taught, but we pursue holiness as evidence that we have been transformed. We are being transformed by God. And the beautiful insight that I was, um, that I gleaned from that book that I mentioned earlier on hypocrisy, it mentioned that any charge of hypocrisy, any charge of unholiness in our lives, 
is an opportunity for us to confess, to repent, to say, that's true. Not to hide from that, but to say, you know, you're right. That's true. I am not living up to what scripture demands of me. But I have a God who's willing to forgive me if I confess this to him. And that's what we can do. Again, I, I just want to bring that up because when we read verses like this, don't be like, don't be unholy. We kind of think, oh, like I can never sin again. No, it means if you sin, you have an advocate. If you sin, you can be forgiven. So those are the three concerns. Our, our hearts, the hearts that would lead us to trade God's treasure for monopoly money, um, our goal that we have in mind, and roots of bitterness. We should be concerned about all three of those things. And, and I just want to try to give you a way to remember these things, okay? So I remember reading a few years ago that every healthy marriage should have three things. And really, this is any good relationship. Any good employee-employer relationship, any good family relationship, any good friendship that you have, all relationships that are healthy and good should have three things. They should have side-by-side, face-to-face, back-to-back. Side-by-side, face-to-face, back-to-back. Side-by-side, you know? Well, one, I want to say this. If you don't have these three things, you're not, you're not, that's not a relationship. You don't have it. If you have three things, all three kind of growing, working together, you're that's a really healthy relationship. Cherish it. And then as you go down that list, two, one, there's work that needs to be done. Okay? So, so the more present these things are, the healthier the relationship. So side by side, face to face, back to back. Side by side. If we're walking together, hiking, and you know, we're enjoying our hike, where are we going? We have a goal. We want to get to the top or we want to go far. Whatever the case is, we're walking side by side with the goal set before us. So our eyes are fixed on the goal. But imagine you're walking, I'm walking side by side, eyes fixed on the goal, but you're bleeding out and I'm unaware. Then this side by side relationship that we have suddenly becomes like a liability. It was an asset, but now it's a liability. So, of course, I can't just have my eyes fixed on the goal and not be concerned about the person that's right next to me. Okay, let's change the focus. I'm concerned about you. I'm, my eyes are fixed on you. But what happens then? Now I'm unable to see if there are any threats because my line of sight is here. It's not over here. It's not over here. So if I'm just looking at you, concerned about you, what about the threats around me? And, and what about the goal? Like, where are we going? Are you now my goal? Like, what, what's happening there? So side by side and 
face to face. They're both important. Face to face, though, um, you'll you'll notice that in war, soldiers are never just staring at each other. <laughs> That's never the case, right? Soldiers actually will sleep back to back, so that you know they know if an enemy is approaching them and they have the other soldiers back, because it's important. Back to back is also important to see the threats, to see what's happening. So. A good relationship will have all three of these things. Because we're not just soldiers. You know, I'm just concerned about the enemy. No, no, we're, we're, we're one. We're united. So we should have front to front, back to back, side to side. And that's what this passage is telling us. Side to side gives us a good perspective of what the goal is, the grace of God that we don't want to miss out on. Yet, we're on the defense. We're back to back. We're, we're making sure that there's no roots of bitterness around us, springing up, causing trouble. And then, we are also aware of one another. We're, we're face to face, allowing our hearts to be exposed and saying, hey, do you see anything in me that would say, man, I think you're in danger of missing out on the grace of God. I think that lifestyle, that conduct, that unholiness puts you in a dangerous position. So notice, all three at the same time are needed. And maybe this week, you can meditate on this passage and ask, you know, which ones am I thriving in? Which, am, I, am I a side-to-side Christian? Back-to-back Christian? Front-to-front? Like, wh- wh- what, where, where am I, wh- what am I doing? How good am I in, in this category, in that category? And, and then the church as a whole. Like, where, how, what's our strength? What's our weakness? Can we grow in one area or another? Because again, the healthier the relationship, the more present all three of these concerns that are found in our passage will be. I'm just going to end with this. Um, Jesus, he is the greatest example of this. He is. He is the one who, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So he had his eyes fixed on a goal. Even if it cost him his life, he was going to get the goal. But we all know that Jesus is so connected, meaning he is so in tune with who we are. He's looking at us looking at us, caring about us. He, you know, he sees Zacchaeus in a tree. Nobody else sees him. He sees him. He, he sees the marginalized, the outcast. He sees those who are sinful, those that God says, you have to be separated from me because I am holy. And he says, hey, I'm going to call out the sin, but I'll point you to the grace of God where you can find forgiveness. And Jesus is totally aware of the threats, totally aware of the craftiness of Satan and temptation and all those different things. But he's on guard. He fought. He resisted. He conquered. That's why we are to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, because he sets an example for how we ought to live, 
and live within community. So we want to be side to side, eyes fixed on the goal. Back to back, on defense, alert, watchful. We want to be face to face, caring about one another's conduct in heart condition. Okay, I'm going to conclude this way. Um, I just want to read something to you, something I came across uh, many years ago. And I thought about it this week as I was preparing the sermon. Um, the church that I heard it from calls it a church covenant, okay? That's what they call it. And they define it this way. This church covenant is a statement of how we pledge by God's grace to live out the Christian life together. So I'll read this church's covenant to Covenant Life Church, okay? And I wonder if you will hear this passage echoed throughout. The passage we just looked at, I, I, I wonder if you'll hear it echoed throughout this covenant. Having, as we trusted, been brought up, been brought by divine grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and give up ourselves to him. And having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit, we do now, relying on his gracious aid, solemnly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. We will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Strive for peace. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes the members of a Christian church. Exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish or warn and entreat, plead with one another as occasion may require. We will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We will endeavor to bring up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and by a pure and loving example to seek the salvation of our family and friends. We will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. We will work together for the continuance of a faithful evangelical ministry in this church as we sustain its worship ordinances, discipline, and doctrines. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, and the spread of the gospel throughout all nations. We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, unite with others' churches where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen. This is, if I remember correctly, this is what they repeat each other, to each other a few times a year. 
at their member meetings. So a few times a year they gather and they recite this to reaffirm, recommit themselves to living this out. That's what this passage is for us today. It's, this is not new information. This is just a reminder of how we ought to live and care for one another by showing concern for one another. The main point of this passage is get up and persevere by caring for one another. And, you know, I was thinking, well, actually, my wife had this thought. She saw this manuscript. She read it. She said, it's, you know, this is like your last sermon. You're essentially telling CLC, take care. You know, thank you for letting me be a pastor here and take care. But it's more than that, she noticed. It's, it's, it's take care of one another. That's what this passage is, side by side, face to face, back to back. Take care of one another. Um, there's a gathering scheduled, I think, after today's service. And um, my hope is that more than coming to see me or the kids, Ata, um, that CLC will see CLC. That you will see one another. You will see the individuals that God has in this season of your life united you to. You are one body, one church. So see yourselves. Take care of yourselves. Care for one another by showing the concerns that are exhibited through this passage. And as I said at the beginning, the world is watching. And we have something to show them. The world is watching to see if our lives measure up to what we say we believe. And it's, we do have that ability. We have an ability to live holy lives before God. But we also can show them love for one another that lets people know that we have received an even greater love from God. Let's finish the race and care for one another until the end. Let's pray. Um, as I said, it's um, it's really good to for me personally to reflect on my years here. Um, highs and lows and all these different things in between. But God has been faithful. And one thing that I've come to recognize is how precious the community of believers is. Um, so, you know, as we prepare to sing and as we actually sing, again, let, let's, let's listen to the voices, the voices that surround us, um, that remind us that we are not alone and remind us of who, whom we are called to care for. So let's take a few moments. Um, let's just pray in our hearts, and then we'll close with a song. Let's pray for one more thing together. Um, before we close our worship, let's pray 
for Pastor Thomas and his family and for their next steps as they move on from here. I think um, just even the the word the word of God that he shared with us today is very reflective of just Pastor Thomas's heart. We could have talked about a lot of different things, but he just really wanted us to be better after he leaves. He's warning the church that he leaves behind to be better, to love God, to receive God's grace, to experience God's grace, to, to care for one another. And I think that's really uh, reflective of a pastor's heart. And uh, let's pray that God would go with him and his family, that they can really be a blessing wherever they go. God would lead them to um, the next place that he has for them and that they would serve well and that God would use them to really allow the church of Jesus Christ to grow and to become a place where they can experience the grace of God because of his presence there. So I'm sure we'll have opportunities personally to thank them and say farewell. But in this moment, let's pray before God and ask that he would really go with them and use them. Let's pray together for them. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace, the grace of God that is uh, actually present in our lives. We thank you that we can experience you as uh, undeserved as we are, that we can experience your love and live in your love and that nothing can change that because Christ's work on the cross. Um, we thank you that because of that grace, that we can share that love with others, that we can care for one another, that we can really be a church that is different from the world. We thank you that you empower us to live holy lives, uh, focused on the word of God, living in obedience to your word, taking our eyes off of ourselves, being able to care for others as we love ourselves. We thank you that those things are made possible by your grace. Help us become a church that is fueled by the grace of God. And especially in these times as we're in need, as many people are in need, help us to care for one another and use these opportunities to extend the love of God. We especially also pray together for Pastor Thomas, for Eta, for their children, for this family. Thank you so much for the ways that you've strengthened and blessed our church through their ministry, their heart to care for the people in this community in the ways that we've been helped personally by their presence. Thank you for the ways that you've been working in them and through them, and we pray that you would continue to do that as they move forward from here, that you would go with them, that the, the promise of your presence with them would be sure and that you would lead them to the place that you have prepared for them. And uh, whether it be tomorrow, next year, a decade from now, just pray that you would allow this family to be a salt and light, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. So many people will see Christ more clearly, his love for them more clearly because of their ministry into their lives. Strengthen this family, strengthen their marriage, strengthen the, the parent-children relationships. And no matter what may come in their futures through all the ups and downs,
pray, Lord, that your grace would go before them. And at the end of the day, the testimony would be Christ's exaltation through their lives. That Jesus Christ would be known through their life testimony. Thank you, Lord, so much for all that you've done through them in this church. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible unchanging covenant love of the Father God, and the fellowship and the strength and the power of the Holy Spirit be with you, God's people, both now and forever.